I'm Nick Harcourt. Welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. The team here at The Sound of Success is taking this week off to sit by the beach and try not to get the Delta variant. Hot back summer? Yeah, maybe in 2022. In the meantime, we're bringing you a best of Sound of Success first albums medley, highlighting our favorite answers to this question. What was the first album you bought with your own money? My answer to, to this question is actually uh, twofold, because the first album I bought with my own money, I split with my mom. Does that count? It was half my mom money, half my mom's money, and it was the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's, 1967. I was nine. And then the first album I actually bought exclusively for myself was Deep Purple's Fireball, which was 71, 72, something like that. All right, let's hear from our guests. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Please get vaccinated so we can all rock on. Barry Ritholtz of Ritholtz Wealth Management tells us about his first purchase, a tribute to a fine girl and the lost art of recording music off the radio. I remember that. All right. So a lot of this is going to be really embarrassing in hindsight, but it's what starts us off. When I was... I want to say six or seven years old, like single digit age, my parents gave me a tape recorder and I found myself using it to record music off the radio. And it's hilarious how things come full circle. I think the first song I recorded was Brandy. Do you remember that? You're a fine girl. And the funny thing is that started showing up on playlists this summer, I started hearing it again. Like, what? Where is that coming from? Um, and and that is probably the earliest memory I have of recorded music. So, what about buying music? Do you remember the first album you bought with your own money? I do. And again, really embarrassing. You wait till you hear the rest of the questions. Red Octopus, not even Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, and. You know, I always had side jobs as a kid, mowing lawns and delivering newspapers. There was a store called EJ Corvettes. And the best part about Corvettes, aside from the name, was that their music department, you could go buy records for like $3.99 and $4.99. Like five bucks for an album was fantastic, even as a kid. So Jefferson Starship, Red Octopus. Priya Dewan, a VP specializing in Southeast Asia and Korea for music distributor The Orchard and founder of music tourism company Gig Life Pro, had to buy her first album under the counter at a skate shop in Singapore. Badass. So I grew up in Singapore and Singapore was more conservative in the 90s than it is today. And it this was pre-high-speed internet, like I'm talking dial-up days, right? So there is no music discovery or music sharing on the internet at that point. So my music exposure was really limited to US and UK pop that I could hear on the radio. And that didn't really speak too much to me. And luckily I went to the American school and my friends used to go home for the summers and for Christmas and they would bring back cooler music like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and get me interested in in alternative music, which I didn't even know how to describe it back then, right? And the first record, the first CD I bought for myself 
was Marilyn Manson's Anarchist Superstar. And I had to buy it like under the counter at this <laughs> skate shop in a really dodgy mall because it was actually banned from Singapore. It was illegal. It was illegal. And don't tell anyone. Sure. <laughs> was, was that part of the attraction, by the way? Oh, my gosh. It, it, <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I used to spend hours rollerblading around the island with the beautiful people on repeat. And I really, I was like, I just don't understand why this is banned. And, you know, we didn't get the visual elements, right? So I didn't see like music videos or I didn't see, you know, I was like, this is just really, really great music. You know, I can't see the forest full of trees. That's <laughs> fascinating though, if you think about it, because obviously culturally you're living somewhere where you're just hearing the music yeah. just Barely, obviously, because it's illegal. So you're, you're hearing the music, but you have no idea of all the imagery that's going along with this stuff. So, yeah. so, so when did you find out about the imagery that went along with this stuff? We might be jumping forward here and then jumping back, but uh, there's a big difference um, between listening to it and actually seeing what he was up to. It wasn't, it wasn't until a few years later, and I'm going to tell you, I was surprised. I was surprised. I was a very, very innocent, <laughs> innocent kid. You know? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, that said, I, I still continued to listen to it. And I remember going to, to see shows like that. Like a couple of my friends in high school were goths. So they were the ones to really introduce this content to me. And, you know, like Nine Inch Nails and A Perfect Circle. And, and I love that as much as I loved my 80s, as much as I loved my 90s, like love ballads I used to listen to on the way home from right. the bars in high school. Um, I think because I didn't have an opportunity to really discover music and explore all of these different genres on my own or platforms to do so, I was so heavily influenced by my friends at the time. And it gave me such great exposure to so many different genres of music and appreciation to so many different genres of music. Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas had his teenage mind blown by the Pixies Doolittle, an album he discovered on Vanderbilt University's radio station. I can't specifically remember the first album I bought with my own money. That said, once I started buying albums, I got into it. I was pretty obsessed, especially starting at about you know, 18, 17, 18, through kids. When I had kids, I, it became a little harder to pursue. I, I've been trying to get back into music lately, but... I had a good like 15 year run where, where I was really into it. And I was lucky because right when I got really into music, right around high school is when 90, it was like 90, 91. And that's when, you know, grunge hit and the music got really good. A lot of creative, you know, emotive performers started coming up at that time. And I feel lucky that I was able to, to get into, that I had that love of music right at that time. So did you really sort of come of age with the Gen X bands? Are you Generation X? Is, is yes. that your demo? Uh, obviously, alternative rock, as it was known at the time, just blew up in the early 90s, coming out of Seattle and, and uh, Nirvana, of course. But so much other stuff in the 90s. Uh, name some of the other artists that you were into back then. So I remember being in Maryland and I was into real pop stuff like Millie Vanilli, Keith Sweat, uh, a lot of R&B, uh, Bib DeVoe. But then when I moved to Tennessee, I had a tougher time in high school. And this is before Nirvana. The, the radio station in Tennessee, let's say it goes from like 88 to 106. From 92 to 105 is all country. But before early, like uh, number 90 was the Vanderbilt College Station. 
And my God, did I lock into some good music there. I got into Nine Inch Nails and then the Pixies. Then I was starting to watch uh, Dave Kendall's 120 Minutes on MTV, which, sure. and then I would start to go to Rolling Stone and look at the college, the Shots. top college albums, and I just start buying them. And then my, my whole life changed with Pixies Doolittle. That album I got, this is pre-Nirvana. At first, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Again, I like to be confused at first. But by, by listen number five or six, I was like, oh, my God, this just blew my mind. And then when Nirvana hit, that was a whole thing. And then Nine Inch Nails and then all this stuff, The Cure. So I was into a lot of those underground bands. Nirvana just simply was the catalyst that blew it all up. But there was a lot of kindling set for that whole movement in that college rock you know, 88, maybe to 91, there was a lot going on there too. But I would say those are the bands that, that I was really attracted to. Um, and, and then obviously getting into some of the more standard grunge bands at the time as well. But I was, I was not like, oh, I heard Pearl Jam Alive and I was into it. I was definitely a little more deep into it way before that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, 88 was when, I think it was 89, actually, when I got into radio. And uh, I was working in a small market commercial radio station in Woodstock, New York at the time. I was very fortunate that, you know, I was a warm body whose hands and legs worked for $5 an hour on the, on an overnight shift. But I, I remember the college stations were driving the new music. The college stations were the people who were exposing a new music. And I've been fortunate to have a career in public broadcasting since then as well. And it seems that college stations, public uh, stations are the ones that even now will, will still take chances as uh, radio in general has just become so homogenized. I mean, we have obviously other options now with a satellite and, uh, and internet and all that. Where do you listen to, to music uh, yourself these days? How do you discover music? It's funny. 103.3 is the Princeton radio station. I still listen to it. And every now and then I'll hear a song on there. Sometimes there's weird stuff. Like you're like, this is, I don't even know what's going on, but <laughs> I like that. But I can't, it's not even, I need a little melody. You know, I, I can't go full, you know, uh, I get it. full avant-garde. I, I need a little yeah. melody to hang on to. Sure. But they'll get into, I'll get a good DJ on there sometimes. And I'll sit in the car and wait for them to go over who they just played. I'll still do that occasionally, but that's rare. On-ramp invest CEO and cryptocurrency expert Tyrone Ross walked across Boston to buy Notorious B.I.G.'s Life After Death, an album he cherished and still loves to this day. The, the, the year is 1997. I was getting recruited and going on my recruiting trips, and I was getting recruited by Boston University. And I took my trip up there, and Biggie's album was about to come out, uh, Life After Death. And it was about to come out at midnight. And again, at that time, you would go to the store and actually get the record. And, and my host at the time who was hosting me, he was like, there's no way I can let you go on that side of town to go buy this album. And I just remember I said, and I was to this day, Biggie is, I love Biggie. I walked by myself, like got the directions, walked, stood in line to buy this album and they were playing it outside and they were playing it inside. And it was the most amazing experience, people from all over and actually go to get your hands on that album. And I just remember buying it and I, I was on cloud nine, right? And, and, you know, and that was again, obviously shortly after he passed and that whole thing. So it was, it was such an incredible memory for me. And it was ingrained by the fact that I actually was in Boston at a meet earlier that year when I found out he had died. So to mm. be back there and to be able to go walk to get the album is something I'll never forget. 
But that is definitely the one moment and the one album getting that I will never forget. TikTok executive Tracy Gardner found Nine Inch Nails as a kid the way so many jet men again. TikTok executive Tracy Gardner found Nine Inch Nails as a kid the way so many Gen Xers and millennials did via a Columbia Recording House subscription, which famously got you eight CDs for a penny. Just pray your parents didn't get too mad when the collection notices came. I think it was probably, though, one of those Columbia House Records things that oh, I where you I get think, like yeah a whole you, bunch for a dollar or something yeah 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 I think you had to pay for the postage and you get eight CDs for a cent and right. it, you were better off getting the eight if you didn't get the full eight they charge you full price for the CD so I think I called when I was young I didn't have a credit card and I think I called and pretended to be my mom <laughs> and she so then they were surprised when they found that got this bill for CDs that they never ordered. It was a very eclectic mix, but I think I remember even like Nirvana was in there, not, you know, Nine Inch Nails. So ones that I'm glad I ended up getting, but again, it was sort of, I'm, I'm sure I probably had a friend who was guiding me around <laughs> down the path of, of Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails, but I was thankful for it. So yeah, that would have been the first one for sure. Macroeconomist L. Hawkins' parents wanted her listening to Mozart in her room. Instead, it was Queen. They weren't happy. Yeah, my parents did not like this one. <laughs> so the first one was I bought a the single to Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. All right. <laughs> my so it was a big skier, grew up just constantly on the slopes. And all my friends would be up there and we would sing the lyrics to the song and another one down, another one, another yeah. one bites the dust when people would fall below us. Which Perfect for the slopes, yeah. <laughs> That's not it, but I was I was really ashamed because I didn't quite know the lyrics well enough. So I bought the single and would play it again and again and again and again. That's Why'd you say your parents um, weren't too sure about that? Well, I don't think they really appreciated Queen. They were definitely more the like Nat King Cole, Sinatra, gotcha. Tchaikovsky, Beethoven. Yes, yeah, so we, they weren't big on Queen, and I think probably playing it repeatedly. And I, I cannot carry <laughs> it to drive anybody save. nuts. Right. And I, I can't tear, carry a tune to save my life, but that doesn't stop me. So I'm belting it out. <laughs> oh, so the combination of Freddie Mercury belting it out and you singing along was just a little too much, huh? Yeah, no one should have to live through that. <laughs> CNBC anchor Bob Pisani's first album was the Bee Gees, a musical group he still returns to over and over again when he wants to dance or cry. <laughs> Well, growing up, like most kids, I'm 64. So growing up in the late 60s, um, my first record, uh, which I got in 1964, I was eight years old, was Puff the Magic Dragon by <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary. I, yeah. think, I think a lot of people, my generation, that was their first record. My mother bought me a blue little phonograph to play it on. And within two years, uh, at the Hatboro Record Store in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, I went and I bought my first 45s. Uh, Frank Sinatra had That's Life out that year. In 1969, I bought my first LP. I was 13. It was the Bee Gees' first album, the one with 1941 Mining Disaster on it. Uh, and Procol Harum's first album, of course, the one with Whiter Shade of Pale. Those two albums are indelibly etched in my memory. You mentioned uh, the Bee Gees was one of them. Have you seen the, the documentary that's out yes. right now? Fabulous. Loved it. My wife is a huge Bee Gees fan. I mean, Barry Gibb toured a couple of years ago and she was at like the fourth row seat in Philly to sit. 
So yes, I thought it was very moving. I like very much how they actually got video of them working and uh, putting together some of their most famous songs, very poignant. I think the most amazing thing about that documentary for people who don't know their early work is that this band has really had four different careers, four completely different incarnations. Most people just think of the disco stuff, but there was a whole world in Australia before that, a whole world in the UK before that. Um, fascinating band. And yeah. as a songwriter, Barry Gibb is, is right up there. You know, it's funny because I say that album was their first album, the one with New York Mining Disaster 1941 on it. But in Australia, they had already several albums out. I didn't even realize that. Because, and I know when you mentioned that special, they showed it in the special. And I said, oh, my gosh, they had albums out. But to me, that's considered their first album, that that album in 68 or 69 right. uh, that they had. out, And they had a song out at that time, the first of May. I have the 45 of it. And every Fantastic. year uh, on the 1st of May, I get my wife up and we dance to it. When I was small and Christmas trees were tall. I love that. We laugh while others used to play. It's a kind of simple ditty, but it's very heartwarming. Now we are tall and Christmas trees are small. Bob sings, everybody. So the, <laughs> anyhow, you don't get me started. Vanity Fair editor Bethany McLean isn't afraid to say it. She grew up on hair metal, including Poison, which is fitting since Enron, the company she helped topple with her Watershed Fortune magazine article, were looking for nothing but a good time, weren't they? So with, with those early memories of classical music, and as you said, not being uh, able to uh, be exposed to other music through television, did you listen to the radio at all? Did you hear pop music? When did that come into your life? It really didn't until I was in high school because I grew up in a pretty remote part of the country and I'm sure there were radio stations, but, but there weren't many. Um, and so so the, the, even the radio and popular music, I don't think was part of my life until maybe eighth or ninth grade until high school when I when I had friends and friends listened to popular music. But you're, you're going you're gonna to laugh in part because of where I grew up is a mining town in northern Minnesota called Hibbing, which we can come back to speaking of music that might ring a bell for you. Um, but it the only thing was heavy metal. I grew up in, I was in high school in the 1980s during the era of big hair bands. And my senior high school class song was Poison, I Won't Forget You Baby. So I still remember when, when, I, got, when I got to college in the fall of 1988, we still had tapes then. And one of my roommates was going through my tape deck and she was just utterly horrified. She couldn't believe the music in there. She was like, White Snake, Def Leppard? What is this? Who are you? <laughs> That's so funny because you're talking about classical music, obviously, and then you went right to the other extreme. And completely. Although Metallica, speaking of heavy metal and classical music, Metallica had that really interesting collaboration, I think, with the San Francisco uh, Orchestra that was a classical and heavy metal collaboration. So perhaps they're not as far apart as they may sound. <laughs> I think they did something with Michael Kamen. He was the conductor, the film yes. composer. Yes, I think uh, that's what it was. And it's funny, as you mentioned that, you're right, there's been a couple of heavy metal bands that have done classical collaborations. I think Pink Floyd did something pro probably with the London Symphony Orchestra or whatever. That That is interesting to think that music is able to be performed in that way with an orchestra. And I, I think perhaps for you as well as for me, there ain't nothing like a, an orchestra in just full force. Yeah, absolutely. 
Reggie Brown is the godfather of ETFs and has had a huge impact on the financial world. And he gave his hard-earned dollars as a kid to Prince and Rick James. I want to say it was either Prince or Rick James. And I went to several Prince concerts, you know, through his lifetime. And actually, I saw his last tour he did before he died. I saw it, I think it was in Baltimore in the Royal Farms a couple of years ago. And, you know, I, I'm grateful to have that opportunity, given that he passed not too long after that. But I want to say Prince or Rick James was the first albums that I bought. And, you know, again, let's look at the ecosystem of what time frame we're talking about. We're talking about actual albums where we had album covers on our wall because we were idolizing whoever we're listening to. So that was, I remember that. So for me, it was model airplanes hanging from a ceiling. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm an Air Force brat. And then I want to say the purple strobe light and then album covers that I either obtained from my parents or bought myself being 11 or 12. So that's my memory around that time period. But long time Prince fan, I can tell you that. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.